Luke 22, we will read the verses 1 to 20. We are continuing on with uh, studying what Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper. And so in this passage from Luke 22, uh, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper as uh, instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke 22, beginning at verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which a Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thus far, our reading from Luke 22. Let's now turn to... A Revelation chapter 2. So Revelation 2, we will read verses 1 to 7. Uh, this is the first of Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And this is the letter to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's far the reading of God's Word. Let's now sing together uh, from hymn 30. We'll sing together stanzas 3 and 5. This afternoon, we are looking at what Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper as summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 30, you can find that on page 545 of the Book of Praise. Lord's Day 30, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. 
And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure many of us here would consider ourselves visual learners. Many of us find it's easier to learn something by seeing something. Now, in our worship services, we have preaching is central, and that requires only listening. You only listen. And there's a reason for that. It's because the goal of preaching is more than just learning. The main thing is about trusting, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's about trusting in our God and Father. And God says in His Word that faith comes by hearing. Now, having said that, it's still nice to have something to look at. And God has given us something visual, something to see with our eyes, to teach us. He's given us the sacraments, baptism like we had already, and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments have been called a visible gospel. A visible gospel. What does that mean? It means what the good news of Jesus Christ proclaims to our ears, the sacraments proclaim to our other senses, like our sight. The church father Augustine called the sacraments the visible form of an invisible grace. God has given us the sacraments like the Lord's Supper to reinforce the message of Christ to us. Christ himself is proclaiming something in the supper, exactly what the gospel proclaims to our ears. He's proclaiming to us by the symbols what he's done for us and in our place for our salvation. One thing he proclaims to us is also what we will focus on this afternoon as I've summarized it in the sermon theme. In his supper, Christ proclaims that he has forever redeemed us so that we might serve him. It's one of the the main proclamations given through the Lord's Supper. Christ has forever redeemed us so that we might serve him. So that's the main theme of this sermon. Along with that theme, we have three main points. First of all, the meaning of the supper. Second, the attitude of the participants and also the duty of the church. So what is the Lord's Supper all about? Of course, there's been 
Many debates about that throughout church history. You see some of that in Lord's Day 30, question and answer 80, differences between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass. So what is this supper all about? Well, we can say many things about that. This afternoon, we're going to focus on one particular thing. We're going to see the meaning of the Lord's Supper in light of the Old Testament Passover. The Old Testament Passover. After all, think about when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. We read about that in Luke 22. He instituted the Passover or the Lord's Supper during the Passover celebration. That was on purpose. Right? Jesus told some of his disciples to prepare the Passover. And then, during the celebration, Jesus gave instructions about a new meal. He was instituting something else, the Lord's Supper. Now, why did the Lord Jesus do this? What's significant about the timing? Well, the first thing we can say is that the Lord's Supper has replaced the Passover. When Christ broke the bread, he told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. So just as God told the Israelites in Exodus 12 to keep the Passover again and again as a memorial meal, so Christ told his disciples and so all of us to break the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of him. It would be a new meal that the church celebrates again and again. So we no longer celebrate the Passover, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. However, we want to see much more than that. By putting the Lord's Supper in place during the Passover, Christ was saying something very significant about his death that was about to happen. What was he saying? He was proclaiming, by instituting the Lord's Supper at the Passover, that his death would bring about a new and greater exodus for God's people. Think about the Old Testament Passover. It was instituted right before Israel's exodus from Egypt. They had been slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for so long, they were in bitter slavery for hundreds of years. But their exodus from slavery coincided with the death of the Passover lamb. In fact, their exodus could take place because of the Passover lamb, right? The Israelites, they took the blood of that lamb, they they put the blood on the doorposts of their houses. God came in judgment upon the land of Egypt. He struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he spared the Israelites. Israel escaped the judgment through the blood of the lamb. Through this, Israel was saved, and now Israel could go free free from their slavery to Pharaoh. They were freed from their slavery on Passover night. Well, this helps us to see some of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper right before the new and greater exodus. The exodus Christ brought about for his church, for believers like you. 
that, of course, raises an important question. What kind of exodus did the church need? What kind of exodus did believers need? We see all people, by nature, were in slavery. In slavery to sin, in slavery to Satan. In our sinful nature, we were serving the devil. He was our master. We were subject through that slavery to death, to condemnation, to God's judgment. Well, how did God free us from that? Through the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us this is who Christ is. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus was the Lamb God chose. He's the Lamb without spot or blemish. And Christ's death on the cross was a sacrifice, a sacrifice of the Passover Lamb. We see this, too, in the fact that Jesus' bones, they were not broken on the cross. Why is that important? Well, the Old Testament Israelites, they had to take care when they sacrificed their Passover lamb that the bones of the Passover lamb were not broken. And Christ's bones on the cross were not broken like the two people crucified with him. And Scripture again is showing Christ is the Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us on the cross. And what are the effects of that sacrifice? What did he accomplish on the cross? Well, Christ has redeemed us forever. He bought us back. He freed us from slavery to sin and Satan. He forever made us his own We are Christ's possession through his sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's done for you who believe. Taken away your sin by his sacrifice. You can know that. He's taken it away. That's why we can say like we confess in Lord's Day 1, I'm not my own but belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with His precious blood and has freed me from all the power of the devil. Right? There's that Exodus language. He's freed me from all the power of the devil. So this is the beauty of Christ's sacrifice as a Passover lamb. See, Christ did not merely provide a temporary redemption. He gives a permanent redemption. He doesn't set us free from the devil only to later give us back to the devil so that the exodus needs to happen again and again for the Christian. Christ did not make us his possession only for a time. He makes us his own forever. And this is what Christ is proclaiming to us in the Lord's Supper. He's pointing us to the reality of what He accomplished for us on the cross. See, our Passover lamb is not sacrificed at the Lord's Supper. It is a picture of His sacrifice. 
But we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, again and again. No. That's already happened. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of His sacrifice. What it accomplished once for all. That's also what Lord's Day uh, 30 is getting at. Christ's sacrifice was good to redeem us once for all. Believers do have the forgiveness of their sins. Furthermore, the Lord's Supper does not itself bring about the exodus from slavery to sin and Satan. Right? The, the Lord's Supper doesn't make Christ's redemption effective. The cross did that. But... The Lord's Supper is meant to assure you that Christ has indeed redeemed you by His blood. It strengthens our faith that this exodus is a reality for the believer. That you belong to Christ. You are His. Christ told us to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. Do this in remembrance of me. And let us do that, beloved. Let us celebrate this great truth of the cross that we belong to Jesus Christ by His blood. He set us free. Rejoice in that. You belong to Christ. And even if Satan fills your head with a thousand doubts... Don't believe the doubts. Believe what Christ is proclaiming to you at the table. He's the Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us. He died so that we would be free. We belong to Christ. Brings us to our next point. So in the second point, we're now going to look at the attitude of the participants. Now, this meaning of the Lord's Supper... Uh, that I've described in the first point, it also forms the attitude and response of those who partake in this supper. Lord's Day 30 asks, Who may come to the table of the Lord? We're going to go through this now, also in light of the understanding of the Lord's Supper discussed in point one. So those who partake are called to partake with humble hearts. Think about it. Think about what the supper is proclaiming. By nature, we belonged to the devil. We were slaves to sin and Satan. That's who we were by nature. Right? We have all sinned in our life. That calls for humility. And look what Christ needed to do to redeem us from this slavery to sin and Satan. He needed to sacrifice himself completely, shedding his blood, being nailed to a cross, being in agony for our sins. Right? Even if we were the only believer in this world, Christ would still need to go through that sacrifice to save us. So we humble ourselves before our Savior because of our sin. Those who come to the table are also displeased with themselves for their sin, right? We have to see sin for what it really is. It's slavery. Do you understand that? Sin is slavery, beloved. 
slavery to the will of Satan. No, it's doing the devil's will. That's what he wants Christians to do. How awful that is. And again, we have to confess, yes, we have all sinned. We've all uh, displeased God by our sin. See, Satan is the enemy of God and all that is good, and when we sin, we are doing what he wants. When we understand that, when we really understand that, how then could we not be displeased with ourselves because of our sin? So again, the attitude of the participant. Of course, the attitude in response of the participants does not stop there. We not only humble ourselves because of our sins, but we are also looking to Jesus Christ. Right? And this is what Christ wants. He wants our eyes focused on the bread and the wine as symbols of His body and blood. He wants us to fix our eyes on Him. That we might also be confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves and we trust We are displeased with ourselves, and we rejoice in the Lord. Those things are not mutually exclusive. They belong together. As the Catechism says, the participants trust that these, their sins, are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. To help us in this, think about those Old Testament Israelites when they received the benefits of their Passover lamb? Were they perfect? Were they sinless? Did they deserve to be spared from God's judgment on Egypt? No. Far from it. Joshua tells Israel in Joshua 24 that their forefathers served idols in Egypt. Their sin was the very reason why they needed a Passover lamb. And God Himself lovingly provided it for them. God spared them by His his love and His grace and mercy. This is the very reason why God sent His Son into the world. Remember again what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Christ came and this is why God the Father sent His Son, that your sins might be taken away through the blood of Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter that this Lamb of God was chosen by God from the foundation of the world, but He was revealed in these last times for your sakes, to redeem you. Maybe you struggle with doubts. Those who struggle with doubts may still come. We don't come because we have perfect faith, but we want to strengthen our faith in Christ. Come to be strengthened. Come to feast on Christ. Well, the people who come to the Lord's table also desire to amend their lives. They desire to serve the Lord more and do what He wants. And think about the, the purpose of the Old Testament exodus. Israel was brought out of slavery in Egypt so that they might serve the Lord. This is what God proclaimed through Moses 
uh, again and again to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might serve me. It's the same thing with Christ and His sacrifice. He's redeemed us, bought us back, made us His own so that we might serve Him. Do what He wants. Listen to how Titus 2 verse 14 describes this for us. Our Savior Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what Christ wants from us. People who forsake lawlessness and are zealous for good works. This is what He wants from you. This is one reason why He died. To set you free. That we might amend our lives. We see this also in the Old Testament Passover. There was one thing God commanded the Israelites to do, and that was to get rid of the yeast from their homes. Why did they have to remove the yeast from their homes? It sounds a bit strange. Well, yeast is a symbol for sin. And God was essentially declaring to them, yes, I've saved you by my grace, but now I'm calling you to get rid of the sin in your life. God said in Exodus 12 that whoever had yeast in their homes must be cut off from his people. And by this image, God is calling us to make a firm break with the sin in our lives. And have you done that? Have you made a firm break with the sin in your life? Is it your aim to throw it away? Get rid of it. Get rid of your old sinful life, your old sinful desires. Christ wants us to serve Him, and that is a life of freedom. It's a life of freedom. There's one more image that helps us here, the the image of bitter herbs in the Passover, right? Israel was to eat bitter herbs at the Passover. Why? God God wanted to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. And this is something we need to remember and to tell ourselves every day. Sin is, not, sin is not freedom. It's a bitter life. It's a wretched life. Sometimes, for some reason, you get that disastrous idea that slavery to sin is a good thing. That's what our hearts tell us. Or that sin will bring us joy. It's simply not true. Sin is a life of bitterness, a life of slavery. We must remember that there is freedom. Uh, there is, sorry, joy and peace in a life of freedom serving the Lord. Brings us to our last point. Now, answer 81, it ends with a stern warning says, hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And that last statement leads naturally to question in answer 82. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving 
and ungodly. And here we confess, no, for the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole entire congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. So the church is, is duty-bound to not admit those who by their confession and by their, their lifestyle they show that they're unbelieving, that they're ungodly. This is the duty of the church. Now this is not to say that those who are admitted are perfect people. No, Paul in Romans 7, some, he said that sometimes he found himself doing the very thing he hated. In the cans of Dort, they also say that those whom God regenerates, yes, he certainly sets them free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life, from the flesh and body of sin. We have weakness that clings to us. So real Christians, yes, they struggle against sin. But that's just the thing. Christians struggle against sin. And if there's no struggle at all, someone is showing they are dominated by sin and by their sinful nature. Sin is ruling their lives. They're living a life of a hypocrite. And they're showing by their lives they do not want to be free from sin or the devil. And so the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude them from the supper until they amend their lives. Now, we see something of this truth in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Maybe you wondered why we read Revelation 2. Well, Christ himself wrote or spoke these words to seven churches in Asia Minor. We read the first letter, the letter to the Ephesian church. Now, what do these letters to the seven churches teach us? Well, they teach us that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, he notices what goes on in his church. And we can see in those letters, he often describes some good things, what the church is to be commended for. But he also rebukes uh, many of them for certain things, often for tolerating certain sins, right? Read through those letters and see Christ um, rebukes them for tolerating certain sins. And the letters make clear that Christ expects his church to not turn a blind eye to blatant sin and hypocrisy, right? It's crystal clear in those letters, the church must not turn a blind eye to blatant sin and hypocrisy. Instead, he shows by these letters he expects the church to do something about these things. Take, for example, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Christ commends them for not bearing with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Right? He commended them for that. They were discerning they tested these men who call themselves apostles. They said, no, you're false. You're not real apostles. Christ said, yes, I'm glad you did that. He also says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The church had to be discerning. Therefore, if for the church to accept these wicked works, of course, it would bring Christ's displeasure. You can see that in these letters. You can see that in some of the other places. Take, for example, the letter to the church at Thyatira. 
Christ says to that church, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Right? They were tolerating it. Christ says you should not do that. Don't tolerate it. And Christ says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who committed adultery with her, I will throw her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her dead, though, her children dead, those who follow her teaching. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and will give to each according to their works. So obviously, these sinful teachings, and these sinful practices, they made Christ angry. So it was being tolerated in the churches. Of course, he was angry at the people who lived this way and did not repent. But he was also displeased with the church for letting it go. What does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, the church must be discerning. It's duty-bound to exclude people who embrace such wicked things that bring the displeasure of Christ. You must exclude them as long as they don't repent. If the church doesn't do this, then we're saying that we tolerate such things. And that brings Christ's displeasure. Now, if these people repented in these letters, that, of course, was a different matter. Then they, too, could be admitted to the Lord's Supper. And, in fact, Christ would rejoice in their repentance, and he would gladly welcome them. But as long as they persisted embracing these things, they must be excluded. Well, the purpose is not only to bring these people to repent, but also to maintain the holiness of the congregation. So we need to be on guard as a church as well. Christ notices what we do as a church. He notices what we tolerate and what we do not. Christ is patient with this church, and God is here to help us. He's given us His Holy Spirit. So then, let us seek His help. Let's pray to Him. Let us study His Word. Let us seek always to be faithful. Let us pray also for these office bearers who have to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Right? Pray for these men. Pray for me as well. That we might do all things according to God's Word. For the good of the church. Beloved, we follow the Lord in His Word, we will bring Him praise and honor always. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together hymn 64.